Hey guys, I want to say a special thanks to our podcast sponsors today, Metal Roofing Alliance and Warm Board. So first off, Metal Roofing Alliance. This is a conglomerate of different manufacturers who make metal roofing products. And if you've seen some of my videos that I've made with these guys, there's a lot more options for metal roofs than just standing seam. And this website that they've got, which is metalroofing.com, it's a great resource to see the options out there. And they have a find a contractor page as well. So big thanks to Metal Roofing Alliance for sponsoring. And next up, Warmboard. Man, when I saw the first Warmboard install that I'd ever seen before, it was on a Steve Basic job. And I was absolutely blown away by this product. They've got not just an incredible product, but what I think is really separates Warmboard from some of the other competitors out there is really system-based thinking, where Warmboard themselves does the full layout for you, does all the calcs, all the material takeoffs, and, and it, they even have now a new uh, boiler system, which has got their logo on it. So you can basically get a kit right, right from the manufacturer that has everything you need for a top-notch rating install. So go check out uh, Warmboard. And big thanks to both those guys for sponsoring today's podcast. Let's get going. All right, my friends. Season two, episode two. We got a great episode for you today. We're talking about one of my favorite topics, which is building better homes. We got two of my friends with me today. I've got Steve Leesom and Tim Hill. These are two big chiefs in my company. And we're going to spend a little bit of time really digging into what it means to be building a better house. We're going to get a little ethereal, but we're also going to get into some really specific topics. Today's build show from the Rockwell Studios here in Austin, Texas. Let's get going. All right, y'all. For those of you uh, who are on the video podcast, uh, by the way, it is 5.03 p.m., so we're doing a little after hours recording. <laughs> Cheers. For those of you who are listening to this, we're drinking water on set here. So Tim Hill, my vice president of construction, Steve Leeson, who is on our episode one here at season two, uh, our COO. Tim, how do you define building better homes? What would you say if someone came to you and said, I want to build better homes? What do you think that means? Well, I would suspect whoever that is, will have heard the, the typical explanation, which involves, you know, craftsmanship, the level of fit and finish of a house, which, you know, is important, mm -hmm. or the sustainable practices or materials that you use when you build it, yep. or the cost of construction and the value engineering that went into making sure it was a good value to build. But that's not what we really want to talk about here. I think what we want to talk about is the way the house performs. Mm -hmm. So the performance of the house, I typically like to break out into four different categories. Okay. The comfort of the house, you know, the, the air quality, the noise, the acoustics, the thermal quality, those kinds of things that yield a good comfort. So that's a great environment to live in. Okay. The efficiency, the cost to operate or maintain, that's probably just as important as the cost to build. Yeah, that's interesting. You add not just your monthly electric bill, but what's your maintenance bill? We were just talking about that earlier before we started, Steve. That's right. Your maintenance costs on your house versus your house and my house, that's that's certainly, as your house ages, an interesting uh, thought. Right. Okay, so comfort, efficiency. Right. Durability. And, of course, all these things are related, but durability is, is how long it takes a system of the house uh, before it would fail. 
And the systems of the house are the mechanical, the electrical, the plumbing, the structural, the building envelope, and the hardware and finishes. So that's the, the basic systems of any house are those six different systems. Yeah. And how long it takes those to fail yields the durability of the house. Now, that's a, that's a function of the, 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 the practices that it went in and putting it all together, the mm -hmm. materials that you used. Um, it also has something to do with the way the house is maintained by the, the end user. Uh, but it, it also has to do with the way we um, go about making sure the fourth area of performance, resiliency, is, is provided. Resiliency is a function of the house's ability to withstand extreme external conditions mm -hmm. or some amount of deferred maintenance. Yeah. And so we, we typically go about doing a number of things during the process to make sure that the house can withstand those extreme conditions, especially, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, as we've discovered that Houses have to endure extreme temperature conditions, extreme moisture conditions, uh, all those things, fires uh, in certain regions of the country. Um, and, and I think that speaks directly to how durable the house is, but also how it can withstand those extreme uh, conditions. It's interesting though. They're really they seem so related, durability and resiliency, but they really are pretty different. Uh, and in the eve of us recording this podcast, we've got a huge storm that's on the horizon. It's coming at midnight tonight. It's been raining all day. It's forecasted for rain tomorrow. They're talking about a half inch of ice all over Texas tomorrow. So that resiliency is a big deal, not just withstanding the storms, but also, for instance, my house that I just built to passive house standards. In theory, I should be able to go several days without heat or power without really dropping my temperature a whole lot in my house because I built it so efficiently with, with a huge amount of insulation, with a lot of thermal mass, some of that kind of stuff. But as we think about resiliency and durability, I think this conversation with you two in particular is really interesting because, Steve, you built a house about, what, 2010 you finished your house? So your house mm -hmm. is, what, a decade old now. And, Tim, you built your house in the 80s. So your house is uh, 30 plus, you know, over 30 years old. Yeah. So as you guys think about your houses, and this is this is fascinating for me, Tim, as a house that's only two months old, you built your house as a 30 something year old builder. Talk to me about how your houses perform from a resiliency or durability perspective and what the 30 some year old Tim did that the 60 year old Tim now goes. Nice job, son. Well, that's interesting. Part of that is design. I think there was a, a an era in the 80s when houses became, became uh, more traditional in design mm -hmm. because people realized that the California contemporary wave of the 70s was a somewhat uh, inefficient way to build in our climate. Mm -hmm. And so we, we went back to a more traditional, uh, efficient building uh, design and that yields a more efficient house to operate. Yeah, uh, easier to maintain. You know, overhangs and um, shading, uh, efficient use of spaces, uh, stacked uh, living spaces. That, yeah, your entire house is stacked. Your two stories yeah. and your second story is perfectly stacked in your first story. Right. That's right. And it's so it's basically a traditional box, which mm -hmm. is very easy to maintain. Yeah. Very easy to to operate. 
low utility costs. So, I mean, that's part of the, the learning process, but it's hard to apply that practice to today's architecture, which is much more modern, uh, much more contemporary mm -hmm. in its materials and its style. So we've had to learn a lot since then. But what I learned basically since then and having to maintain that house is that one, <clears throat> The old 30-pound felt paper works really well. Okay. <laughs> Real 30-pound felt paper. Real 30-pound felt paper. Where the roll paper. actually yeah. weighed 30 pounds. Right. And it's very forgiving, and, and it's easy to apply. Um, and, and so I, I, my house has endured really well because of that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would say that um, – you know, windows are a lot better today than they were then. You still have your original windows in the I, house? I do, but I've had to re-glaze them three, oh, three times all the way around. They're double glazed from right. the 80s? Right. Yeah. So, they, they, you know, the double glazing fails mm -hmm. after five to ten years, and then you have to. And what's your overhang on that house? I can't remember. Two foot? It's two feet. Everywhere? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, on the, on the front, of course, I have porches, so I have an eight to ten foot overhang on the front. So it's yeah. the sides and the back that are you got a You've got a two-story porch, so your porch runs, your front porch runs on the second story as well. Right. So you've got a giant overhang up there. Right. What's interesting about your house, too, this is not an architecture podcast, but, uh, you know, when your house was built in the 80s, I could picture it on the front cover of Southern Living, uh, and that style is still relevant today. Uh, and I think your house could still be on the front cover of Southern Living. Yeah. And Steve mentioned this before we started uh, the record button, but you've also maintained your house really well so that when you walk in the front door, uh, you know, oh, when I'm, I'm trying there, to think of anything that looks dated on the garage. Yeah, I mean, your house looks awesome. immaculate. You've done an amazing job of maintaining it. But I think this, there's something to be said for the style of house that you chose as an owner builder that that many decades ago where you really pick something that uh, is going to endure and last. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it's that that style is not everyone's taste. So sure, it, it's not fair to say I would recommend that for everyone because, you know, a lot of people would think the home is what you might call dowdy. Right. It's yeah. early American. I wouldn't call it that. But <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And so that's. You know, but it turns out that those houses that were built in early America were built that way for a reason. Yeah, that's and that's right. because they were easy to heat, easy to cool, easy um, to build, easy frankly. to maintain. Yeah. Right, and so I mean that that's that, that's just naturally uh, an efficient way to build. And you're also not, uh, you know, re relying on gee whiz modern materials to keep your house waterproof. Right, if right. you have a if you have a golf umbrella up over your house. Uh, and your raincoat isn't perfect, you're okay. If you take away the golf umbrella and replace it with a no overhang modern house, you better have one heck of a good raincoat on. That's right. That's perfectly sealed. That's right. That's right. So, um, Steve, talk to us about your house. Uh, your house was built 10 years ago. Um, I would call your house kind of hill country traditional. Would you consider was it? Am I uh, kind of uh, saying yeah, that style I'd call correctly? It hill country traditional or transitional almost. But it's uh, it, when we were talking about this, I now look at it as a house that has a little too many. It has too many architectural features. Mm -hmm. There is a lot going on on that house. And when we talk about durability, uh, I'm now paying the price for all that eye candy. In, in, in what way? Well, I'm having to maintain it. So there's lots of exposed cedar. There's tongue and groove cedar ceilings on the outside mm. that are getting pounded by sunlight. Mm -hmm. There's cedar posts where 
there's there's steel um, cable rail uh, fences that have to be painted every three years. You know, if, when you put little, you know, three sixteenths inch uh, stainless steel cable in custom made uh, fencing, and the fencing has to be painted every two or three years, you start to have like I now have almost a patentable process for that. What, uh, what what our painter, Gio, and I do is we take straws and we slice them lengthwise and we slide them over the cables. So you don't get your paint on your stainless. That's right. Oh, dang. Now, there's hundreds of feet of this cable, and I'm putting oh. in even more. Oh, my gosh. But that's an expense. That's that's a that's a $3,600. That's that's basically a hunt and it happens every three years. So $100 a month. It's $100 a month because I wanted that kind of... Uh, safety device yeah. on the back deck yeah that's right you know that's interesting that um you've got that that dilemma that you probably didn't think about when you chose that particular product is what you're going to run into when you went to repaint it mm -hmm. right and i think that's that's something i wanted the view that's right and i didn't want anything i wanted it to i Go didn't away. want glass right because then i'd have to wash it right mm -hmm. i think that our audience um all the all the GCs and all the contractors out there need to understand that every time they select a product or every time they offer a product or provide a product for a client, they need to at least think through how that product is going to endure mm -hmm. over the next five to ten years because yeah. somebody's going to have to maintain it if it's not going to be them. Right. And at least set the expectations of the end user that you know, these products need to be maintained if they're going to perform to their highest level. Yep. And what that maintenance schedule looks like. Um, that's sometimes a hard conversation to have to clients. Give me an example of that, Tim, because, you know, we've got several projects going where I know we've got some, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better term, more precious materials uh, on that we know are going to require some maintenance or are not going to look as awesome at day one as they do six months or a year down the road. How have you had those conversations with our clients uh, about those materials, about those selections, and the possibility of switching that to a more durable, more resilient product? Well, that's that's good. I mean, one example might be for, let's say, uh, stucco. Right? So setting the buyer's expectations for different types of stucco and how they – uh, absorb stains mm -hmm. from splashing mud or yeah. whatever when it rains. And if they don't have an overhang, how vulnerable that lower three to four feet of that stucco foundation is going to be. That's right. And what it's going to take to clean it and how often they need to have somebody come do that. Um, and there are certain stuccos that are easier to maintain than others, easier to wash. Some some are just cementatious and they just – you almost have to restucco. There's yeah. no way to get those stains out. That's well. right. So, those kinds of conversations are easy to make over uh, up front uh, if if you include it as part of the conversation about what things cost and how they will perform over time. I will say that um, there's probably some formula that we someday ought to take the time to figure out that we can tell clients for every dollar uh. they spend on a on a on a house relative to the square footage of the house and the site, you ought to figure on spending X amount of dollars or a certain percentage of to that maintain. per year to maintain it. It's and they can include that in their budget as, as a cost to operate. 
Yeah. It's got to be at least one, two percent, maybe even more. Right. Just based on your example, Steve, of every three years, I spent thirty six hundred dollars to repaint this one section of <laughs> fence rail. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you I never it. actually thought about it that way until just now. But that is and I'm I'm fixing to hit it for the third time in 10 years. Yeah. And it, the first time we the, and that doesn't include the original paint job on it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's really interesting. So. Steve, we um, we've developed, or you've developed, I should say, over the years, a addendum to our contract, which tends to get thicker uh, <laughs> over the years after we've made a mistake or two on the job or realized, gosh, we didn't set great expectations on that, and it came back to bite us in the tail. Uh, talk to me about that addendum and how that's evolved and how we've uh, tried to disclose as much as possible ahead of time those pitfalls for our clients in terms of uh, additional maintenance on products. Yeah. And, you know, really, when you think about it, that addendum is it's worth its weight in gold Mm -hmm. because really it's a communications device. And uh, when we go to contract signing, I not only include it in the contract, but I make the owner initial every page. And I still don't know that anybody's ever actually read it. (laughs) I wish they would. But we know? give it to them months ahead of time, That's so they right. have every opportunity yeah. to read it. And um, it's it's really every time we have an experience where somebody's like, well, why did this happen? And we explain to them, well, this happened because you chose this material or your architect or your interior designer or all of us together agreed to install this mm-hmm. particular feature or capability and it's performing exactly as we should expect it to perform. That's right. And that's why it's now failing yeah. because you're going to have to repair it or you're going to have to paint it every X number of months. Or it's not failing at all. It's doing exactly what it's going to do, which is age and patina and look different and not be the same as the day you moved in. That's Absolutely. right. And, right. And, and I think that's part of what we disclose to clients is that certain materials perform better than others and certain ones, ones you know, will will look a certain way or mm-hmm. or degrade their performance over time based on what they were originally and how they're maintained. Yeah. You know, for example, we we try to walk our projects with our clients once a week. Yep. And we've got lots of questions for them, but we want to inform them about how the project's going, uh, what the the challenges we're having are, what kind of information we need to get from them in the way of selections or decisions. But while we're doing that, we point out features that we're, we're installing. For example, uh, we have a house that we're doing that we recently walked the client, and we were able to walk on the flat roof and show them where the roof drains were. Mm. Right? And, and we pointed out to them that at least twice a year, you need to have someone come up here and clean this roof, get all the leaf debris yep. and everything away from those drains so they don't clog up. Totally. All right. From now on, they will know that every winter – and every every summer, they need to have somebody come clean that roof off. Yeah, that's huge. But that's, that, you know, there's there's so many simple things. It's just there's too many of them. Yeah. Like, for example, where's your dryer? At my house, I have two sets of dryers. Uh-huh. I have one uh, in a laundry room, which is right off my kitchen. Then I and have it's one on an outside wall. It's on an outside wall. How how short is your dryer vent? Oh, guess what? I don't have. Did you team me up on this? I don't have a dryer vent. I have a condensing dryer. <laughs> You're so cool. In, in, bo- <laughs> in both dryers? Both dryers are condensing dryers. Wow. I put Mila laundry in. 
That is which cool. The plus is there's no outlet to the outside. I have no dryer vent because dryers use a. I've heard people say about 200 CFM when your dryer is going. You're exhausting out, and when you build a really tight house like mine. I got to make up air for that somehow, or they'll never exhaust 200 CFM, which means either my dryer is going to take twice as long to dry because it's only it's only able to push out 100 CFM instead of two, or I'm going to have to get makeup air for my stupid dryer like right. I do for my range hood, which I didn't want to do. Yeah. So well, I got a condensing yeah. dryer. And then so, I guarantee you, if you go to light a fireplace and you, you don't never, have combustion air, it's going to be drawing back through the dryer vent. That's right. Uh-huh. That's right. Well, at my old house uh, that I just moved from, that house uh, I remodeled 15 years ago, and I did an okay job air sealing it. I got a blower door test five or six years ago just for fun uh, right after I got my blower door, and I blew a three ACH50, so co- a code house for the Northeast, let's say. Now, when I when I had a fireplace there, number one, my wife hated the fireplace because it was smoky smelling. And I never decided to fix it until I was almost ready to move. And I was like, gosh, I really want to make it fire. I want this fireplace to work. So I drilled, I had my uh, mason come and core drill a four inch hole with a, uh, with a damper on it. So when I made a fire, I could open the damper. Well, guess what? The four-inch hole wasn't enough. No. I made him come back and drill another four-inch hole. Probably takes 12-inch hold. Well, guess the thing. Even two four-inch holes wasn't enough for that freaking fireplace, the draft. What I should have done is either put a a draft inducer fan on the top of my fireplace or what I ended up doing most of the time, which was open my freaking sliding door by three feet so I'd have enough makeup air in. Otherwise, it would never draft. Then Uh the fire's just for looks. It's just for, well, of course, but it is for looks anyways. That's right. But when I built my new house, I was like, I don't want to mess with that. Drafting a fireplace is a huge pain, and you need a ton of makeup air. So I eliminated my fireplace, and I'm about to build an outdoor real you know, brick chimney with a true... Uh, well, not really true. It's an isocurrent. It's a fake, but at least it's a real-looking fireplace. So my boys can go outside and make a fire, and I don't, and I can see it from the inside, <laughs> but I don't have to experience the makeup air. Yeah. I've got a neat side story about fireplaces and and the challenges they cause and the way to overcome that. But just back to C's point about dryer vents. That's that's probably the one thing that people never remember to clean out. That's right. Never <laughs> maintain. That's where I was going. Yeah. Uh, sorry, we cut you off on that yeah. one. That's all right. And, and so he's right. I mean, that's just one thing that we need to make sure people understand that even if they're on out. an outside wall, there's going to be some lint debris that needs to be cleaned out regularly. Yeah. But if you don't put it on an outside wall and you've got a substantial run, that's it's almost a fire impossible. hazard. It's a major fire hazard. Well, it's not hazard. only a fire hazard, um, it's going to destroy your machine. Yeah, and it's a bear to clean them, too. You really oh, almost yeah. need a professional to do it. Yeah. You mm-hmm. almost don't can't do it yourself. Whereas in my old house, I had a three-foot run. It was on an outside wall. I had one of those giant brushes that kind of looked like a, uh, uh, you know, like a bottle brush you might uh, use in your kitchen. Like a, like a test tube cleaner. So I would turn my gas dryer on. I'd shove that thing in, and I was always shocked by how much lint came out oh, of it. Yeah. Even though the run was three feet, there was that much debris in the uh, in the dryer. And every year I'd clean it out and was shocked by how much junk was blown on me as I was cleaning well, it and, out. And you've kind of, uh, you're one of the guys that uh, on the tankless water heaters have spent a lot of of uh, your capital talking to people about cleaning them. Yeah, maintenance. Keeping them from scaling. Yeah. 
and uh, and people are beginning to understand that. So yeah. I just think that this whole set of issues of design, you know, let's let's let's. It's kind of like read the audience, right? Mm -hmm. Are people going to take care of their houses? Nope. If that's the case, then we need to build houses that need less care. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, most of America, most of the of the contracting community, especially in volume building, relies on caulk mm -hmm. for the house to perform well. And I don't think, in, in our, especially in our end of the market, it's fair to the end user to rely on caulk for the house not to, to leak to or leak, fail. To yeah. fail. Right. So let's assume that they're not going to maintain the caulk yep. and build a house that even if the caulk allows water to come through, there's a doesn't matter. There's a drainage plane behind it. Yeah. And I think we we do a pretty good job of that. And I think that the entire industry is coming around to doing that as well. Yeah. I got a great quote for you on that one. David Nicastro brought him up earlier. Uh, he has a quote that I I love, which is it's not about keeping the water out. It's about letting the water out. Oh, I love that. So, you know, you can caulk it if you want, but if the water gets back there, you need a way for that water to get out. Right. And that's why anytime we build a roof, we build a siding, anything to do with uh, with cladding on a building, we always have some kind of an air gap behind there. And I just went to a Joe Stebrick seminar last week, and Joe said, basically, as long as you've got um, – even a small air gap, that water will get out and will drain out. So, you know, back in the old days, we used that crinkly house wrap. Right. Uh, and in fact, I think your house has it. Mm -hmm. uh, that would allow some drainage because it made a small gap between whatever material was up against it because it was crinkly. Um, there wasn't drying or airflow there necessarily, but at least it would drain. Uh, and then Joe said, you know, to get the drying effect, you need something like three-eighths or a half-inch air gap. And so when I built my house, all of my hardy plank siding in the outside is on three-quarter-inch strapping. And then I caulked very little on my house because uh, I just didn't want to recaulk it. So that way that water can get in. It can drain out that three-quarter-inch cavity. And then when the rain stops and the sun comes out, that air will flow through there and dry it all out. Yep. But before we clad a house, it ought to be able to turn upside down and float the lake. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> needs to be needs to be watertight without it's, any caulking on the outside. It's kind of a difficult test. <laughs> it's <hard laughs> test. That's right. <laughs> All right, guys. We're getting on a half hour. I'm about uh, ready to call it quits and go home to my family for, uh, for dinner. Any final thoughts on this? Uh, I, I think that if we don't talk about it today we need to circle back at some point in the future and talk about some bad ideas oh things that are, that are just des bad design ideas that will not endure mm -hmm. uh, are not resilient and and um so let's go give us a teaser here. i give want, us, I want us to one. go around here everybody has to name we're just going to go around and name <laughs> one name a bad idea well certainly we all know that ig panels eventually fail uh -huh. they eventually will fog up in between them yep Right, because the seal just can't last forever. So, ten years, fifteen years down the road, all IG panels will fail. Yep. What we're finding in modern architecture is that architects are embedding IG glass in masonry, oh. in steel, and concrete, mm. which means that you actually have to do demolition to maintain the glass. So, never <laughs> bury. Never bury anything. Mm -hmm. Never create a situation where you have to do demolition to maintain some system of the house. Yeah.
I yeah. think that's a good way to put it. For me, uh, I've been thinking a lot about access panels, and I spent a lot of time on my house thinking about, all right, if I need to change this aqua hose bib, how am I going to do it? And so, for instance, uh, at every location where I've got a hose bib in my house, there's an access panel on the inside where you can get to that joint where the back of the hose bib meets my PEX pipe. So I should, in theory, be able to just pop that access panel off, unscrew that thing, pull it all the way out, pop a new one in that's ready to go, and do some kind of sealing at the joint where it uh, goes through the uh, air barrier, which for me is my zip sheathing. And then I've got a brand new one, and I don't have any sheetrock damage. Uh, so that's that's one for me is you know even burying things that, to your point, you know glass seals may get 20 years. What am I going to get out of a hose bib? Maybe 30, maybe 40, but someday you're going to have to maintain that. That's true. So how do we even take things that are decades out and make them more maintainable, easier to find, and not have to cut and do damage? How about you, Steve? What's your example? Well, right now, and particularly with the weather that we're being faced with tomorrow, I think any any kind of natural stone material, uh, whether it's a countertop, or, uh, for example, my pool coping, which after last year's five days of freezing. What is your pool coping? Uh, it's limestone. Limestone. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, gonna, I'm fixing to take it all out. We're going to go with another limestone, but a tighter one, looters. Mm-hmm. But my theory is if you have to seal it, maybe you shouldn't do it. Yeah. Because it's a great point. How many people actually go? You know what? I think I'm going to seal my limestone coping around my swimming pool. <laughs> and no. not only that, I did limestone caps all the way around the wainscoted uh, limestone masonry. So yeah. I've got, I bet I got two thousand feet linear feet of white, formerly white limestone oh man <laughs> that if you don't seal it every and and so it, it's all scalped out now and it, you know because of when we got the water in it and then yeah. you freeze it for five days Spalls. oh yeah. it's yeah. terrible but part of that i would say this i i totally agree with the sentiment the only caveat i would say is it depends on location so my my personal example is that my old my last house uh that i remodeled in uh 2005 six i guess it was I thought I'd be cool and put concrete countertops in. Mm-hmm. And I put them everywhere. And in the kitchen, it was a disaster. I hated it. My wife, from day three, was like, I hate these countertops. And I never did rip them out. Poor girl had to live with them for 15 years before I built her a new house. But uh, the sealer was broken down almost immediately from what we did in the kitchen, which is lime juice and lemon juice and everything you do in the kitchen. Whereas those concrete countertops in the bathrooms that only got exposed to toothpaste and, you know, non-noxious things, they look like the day I installed them when I moved out 16 years later, and the kitchen looked like hell. And I had resealed the kitchen two or three times, but it was like three or $400, and I stopped doing it because I just didn't want to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was it was one of those, all right, ceiling's fine, but let's think about what it's going to be exposed to. And that same countertop in the in the kitchen looked horrible, the bathrooms looked like the day they were born. Yeah. Uh, and so when I was building my new house, I was really cautious about that in terms of, all right, you know, my hardwoods, for instance, can get scratched and worn by my kids. But I knew in my last house after year six or seven, just sand them and refinish them uh, or screen them and refinish them. No big deal. Uh, whereas my countertops, I stayed away from anything, to your point, that needed sealed uh, and did Caesar stone, which is a, you know, a quartz countertop. 
Right. It's going to perform well. Man, when I clean those countertops now, they look like the day they were installed that night when I go to bed, which is what my wife wanted. Mm -hmm. So. That's interesting. And, and, And we could actually... You could actually go off the uh, reservation on this, and you could build a house that's basically almost indestructible in terms of needing ongoing maintenance. It's true. I can tell you, though, that architects and designers are really going to push back because they have a they have a, a desire to use natural materials mm-hmm. as part of their design process. And that so the natural stones that we use and the woods that we use and those things, uh, I think we're going to continue to see. Um, the man-made products certainly are more durable, uh, but they probably don't have as much warmth yeah. uh, and yeah. as depth that they, they want to see. So we have to learn how to communicate with clients about maintenance. We have to warn them about you know how the cost and the periodic nature of frequency. Um, and then if they decide that they want to still stay with the natural products, great. We do, that. we do that too. Yeah. And, and that kind yeah, of brings right. us all the way back to the question you asked me, which is what are we disclosing? What are we putting in there? Yeah. And I think that we ought to, we ought to end this by saying that we're going to do, uh, do kind of an annual awards ceremony. And the award itself will be paint grip roofing. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have a little trophy made out of paint grip. Which will have fingerprints on it and handprints. And we will present that to the supplier, the manufacturer, (laughs) the architect, or the designer. If you're listening and you don't know what he's talking about, let me pause (laughs) you for one second. It's a type of uh, galvanized metal which has kind of a matte gray primer on it that's called paint grip because it's intended to be painted with a paint coating. Um, But because it's kind of matte gray and it's not always the same color... A lot of architects over the years have specified it uh, as a finish in itself, uh, and it's beautiful. But it's gotten into it's gotten us into some client dust ups over the years too, because uh, it looks amazing the day it's installed. Sometimes, not always, but it never looks the same, and it patinas and it changes and it will show fingerprints and uh, so. It's it's a little bit of the marble countertop of roofing. That's right. That's right. And, and I think the end to give credit to the industry, even the designers, they learn. You know, yeah. they, they've been burned enough that they don't specify it much anymore. I, we haven't done a paint grip roof in, in a while, six years, yeah. seven years, something like that. So but also it depends on the client, right? Like a paint grip roof for my wife would be a disaster because my wife wants things to look clean and perfect when she goes to bed. And so her new countertop uh, looks amazing. And my uh, Caesar stone that I bought, it's a heck of a good fake. I mean, you wouldn't know it's not marble when you walk in there, but it cleans perfectly. It's, you know, it's forever sealed, all those good things. On the other hand, we've had clients like I can think of an architect we built for who wanted marble, knew the problems with it or quote unquote problems. And the patina was fine with them. Like they wanted the French cafe look. And great. Okay, if that's you, you know your personality. You've set the correct expectations. Great. It's it's when those expectations aren't clearly communicated that uh, that the problems come up. Yep. 
So. And that's only one of the 465,000 individual <laughs> communications required that's on right. the modern custom home. It's as if we need to, uh, it's like we're building a Boeing airplane <laughs> while we're flying and we need to disclose about every part to the client and what they may or may not have to maintain yeah. in the future. It's the 999,000 page in owner's manual. <laughs> yeah. The verbal owner's manual. The verbal <laughs> Two foot thick owners, man. Yeah. That's Clean hilarious. the dryer bit. <laughs> hey, before we uh, close out the podcast, I want to get your opinion, gentlemen, on the brand new sign that Matthew got made and surprised me with today. This is a nine hundred dollar uh, neon build logo. And if you're not, if you're listening to this, our <coughs> podcast is also on buildshownetwork.com, so you can see it. But this is a white uh, neon sign on a black background. I think it's pretty awesome. I think it probably shows up better on video than it does in person. <laughs> probably true. Uh, but yeah, it's it's very uh, nice. Very nice. And I'm happy to uh, provide an explanation on how you excite the electrons in the gas <laughs> to cause it to emit the light. <laughs> <laughs> These are two engineers who both graduated from the University of Texas. Steve with an electrical engineering degree and Tim with a mechanical engineering degree. I feel like a kindergartner around these two. So, what's the, the voltage difference to excite neon gas versus argon versus I mercury gas? I don't know what anything you're talking about, but I think the sign looks cool. <laughs> Tim, is, Steve, yeah. thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers to you guys. Let's go home to our families. And all freeze. right, guys. And what? And freeze, and then fix all the water heaters starting early next week. When you're listening to this, the freeze is probably over. We're probably all right, but uh, it's got some crazy ice coming in tonight. So we'll see what happens. All right, guys, if you're not currently a subscriber to our podcast, we've got new episodes that come out every single Friday. This is season two. And already I found out that we were in the top 10 uh, under the education tab for Apple uh, podcasts. So that's pretty cool. We've gotten some serious uh, downloads already. And we're really thankful for you guys for tuning in for us on your commute to work on your way to the job sites or wherever you're getting your um, your podcasting. By the way, if you're not familiar with our newsletter over on buildshownetwork.com, we have 10 new videos every single week from job sites around the country. We've got some amazing contributors, including four new contributors that just came on at the end of last year. So we'd love to have you sign up for our newsletter. Wherever you're watching or listening to this, there should be a link to sign up for our newsletter below. In the meantime, follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Otherwise, we'll see you next time on The Build Show podcast all right guys thanks for joining us for today's podcast big thanks to our podcast sponsors today that's warm board and the metal roofing alliance make sure you click on the uh, the link below so you can subscribe to this podcast because we got new episodes every friday we'll see you next time <laughs> <laughs>